we are looking, continuing our study in First Peter. We are looking at First Peter three, verses eight through twenty-two. We considered one through seven last week, and um, that was a natural cut uh, with the wives and then the husbands. And now, from verses eight through twenty-two, we have another subunit, and uh, there's much in this subunit. I don't know if we're going to address it. I know we're not going to address in detail the two controversial things that I had mentioned last week about this text. Um, yeah, verse 21, now baptism saves you, and then Christ's uh, descent, alleged descent. It's not central to Peter's main point here, though it is obviously connected to it. So we'll have um, whatever time we can talk about that, but there's, there's a lot here that I don't want us to, to miss regarding suffering and um, our relationship to Christ in our suffering. Before we hear some of God's word read, then let's go to him in prayer. Our gracious God, we come again before you. We thank you for this word. Thank you for your servant, Peter, who loved the church and uh, wants to see the church uh, grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to grow even through great pains of suffering for the sake of righteousness, we do pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged to keep on keeping on through this text, that your Spirit would help us to see the comfort, even in the face of pain, comfort that comes from heaven above. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, verses 8 through 12, Look at those first. I'll read those verses. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Pick up the other verses when we get to it. But in in these uh, verses, 8 through 12, uh, uh, summarized with the the first point there, Christians unite. Relationships are intended to be at peace. Peter zeroes in on brotherly relationships first. That doesn't mean just brother to brother, that means Christian siblings. That's his focus here. And you see in verse 8, bookends. You see the the word mind in the beginning and the end of verse 8. Have unity of mind, and then have a humble mind. And that's the bookended emphasis. He wants us to be uh, united in our mind. He wants us to be uh, meek. That is to say, we must not think that we are above suffering. As we go on to say in the next chapter, don't think that this pain that you're experiencing is a foreign entity, that it is strange. And suffering is part and parcel of the Christian life. So you're just going to have to get used to it. 
As long as you are connected to Jesus, which is always, on, on this side of heaven, there will be suffering for the sake of righteousness. So various degrees. Sometimes that means physical persecution. Sometimes that means social persecution, as is the case for many of these to whom Peter is writing. You need to have unity of mind. You need to have a humble mind. And in between, so you can see that the meat here is a loving affection of heart, you have sympathy, and brotherly love, and a tender heart. What, he, what Peter's getting at is that in all of who we are, you know, our, our, our cognition, you know, our thoughts, our affections, uh, what we love, what we treasure, what we value, and in our wills, what we are inclined to do and actually do, in all of, in all of who we are, we must seek unity and humility and love. Christian love. Peter wants the church to be united to each other in both truth and love. Now, why is this important? That's more general. More specifically, how is this connected to his soon call for Christians to, pers to persevere in the face of persecution? Why emphasize unity of mind, humility of mind, and brotherly love, sympathy, tender heart, why emphasize these, the brother-to-brother -brother relationship, in the context of suffering for the sake of righteousness? Well, I mean, suffering is really, really hard. So you need fellow believers to be praying for you and supporting you when you're going through suffering. Okay. Suffering is really hard. We need one another to support one another in the face of great pain. Good. Anything else? Well, if we're suffering as a group, like the church is being persecuted and we're not unified, we're not working together, and we don't have humility, and we don't have brotherly love or affection, then not only are you being persecuted by an outside force, but you're being persecuted within each other. Okay, so there's already a fight on the outside. We're already waging war against you know, that trifecta of the flesh, the world, and the devil. And uh, infighting will make things even worse. Okay. One of you united, have a united front. After all, Christ died for us together, right? To be joined to him, to be joined to one another. We shouldn't then be fighting with one another when we are already waging war against persecutors. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And one way we fight this fight is we replace the evil with good. We replace evil with good. Peter turns to the Christian's relationship to the world in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So responding well to the world is easier and more faithful when we do so united in love, as, as we just established. And one way that we can demonstrate love for, for another is to keep our tongue from evil. We should avoid cursing others. 
James talks about this. With the same tongue, we both bless God and curse those who are made in the image of God. And Peter saying, as you relate to the world, as, as the world is coming against you, you might be tempted to lash out at the world. You might even be tempted to lash out one another. Keep your tongue pure. Keep your tongue from evil. Don't curse one another. Keep on the pursuit of good. When he says, on the contrary, bless. This sounds like someone else, someone else's teaching, perhaps on a mount. You know who, who I'm talking about. It could be Peter's teacher. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount begins with Beatitudes, doesn't it? And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. One way, then we, one way we speak a blessing is we speak the word of God. And we speak the word of God in the way that God's word has told us. So, a soft answer turns away wrath, for instance, would be one way. And the reasoning that Peter has here, the reasoning for uh, blessing, uh, to replace the evil with good, he, he cites the Psalms. He cites Psalm 34, 12 through 16. And in this psalm, we see that the Lord sees everything, and the Lord hears everything. All of our actions are, as Ligonier has popularized, popularized the Latin phrase, quorum Deo, before the face of God. All that we say all that we do, if it's not heard or seen by anyone else, it is certainly seen and heard by God, with whom we have to do. You want to be united, you want to pursue well-doing, because God sees everything, and God hears everything. But not just that, but also that the Lord favors the righteous. He is for the righteous, as Psalm 56 says, the psalmist says, This I know, that God is for me. God's not against me. He saved me. He, he declared me righteous because of the righteousness of Christ that has been credited to my account. Now, God is favorable to me. He favors the righteous, and the righteous seek unity, the righteous seek well doing. But also, the Lord faces opposite the wicked, He opposes the proud. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Which 
echoes what Peter had written in verse 7. Remember, when he told husbands to uh, treat their wives in a way that is reflective of the wisdom of God from above, he says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And so verse 12 says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God does not favorably answer prayer, the prayer of the unrighteous. The prayer of the one who is seeking to uh, replace evil with evil. To um, add reviling to reviling. That's not, God doesn't condone that action. He doesn't condone that behavior. He opposes that. He said that's not how you resolve conflict. That's not how you um, should go about when you are suffering for the sake of righteousness. So should these reasons, the Lord sees and hears everything, the Lord favors the righteous, and the Lord opposes the wicked. Should these reasons be terrifying? Comforting? Both? Neither? And why or why not? Well, I'm really comforted with how he hears our prayers. And not just hears, but answers our prayers. That's really comforting. I know that even when we're suffering, God always hears our prayers. He's never asleep, mm-hmm. and He always answers. Yes. That is truly a comfort. Our Father in Heaven loves to hear our prayers. Loves to give us a kingdom, as He says. Again, for both, um, comfort, as you just described, but there's also comfort knowing that just comfort um, in the perfect consistency of God's justice. Absolutely. So sometimes that justice will be uh, shown to his own saints, right? And, and he's not going to answer the prayer in the way that we want him to answer it, precisely because he is a just father. <coughs> your father, if you're an adult, you don't just grant every request of anyone who is, uh, you know, younger than you, or, or in a station that is, you know, inferior to yours, you know, parent, child. You don't say, well, okay, you've, you've asked me, and I love you so much, so yeah, you can, you can have it. Sometimes we say no, and because we have a bigger picture in mind. And sometimes the Lord doesn't answer our prayers, though he always hears our prayers, he always answers them according to his wisdom, and his justice above. And that's comforting. I think we have a sense, maybe not at the time, but like you said, the big picture, which we may realize later, that if we see an injustice that is not dealt with properly, that's not satisfying, it's a disappointment. I mean, even to the extent that, you know, when we're children, we know we got away with something, but we really shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. And in a way, we're kind of disappointed that our parents didn't deal with it, you know, properly. Yeah, that's a good point. <clears throat> this, uh, these verses do echo other verses uh, from, from Paul. 
Romans 12 and 13, you know, not taking vengeance on, on our own and you know, giving it to the Lord. So we're never going to see perfect justice meted out in this life. Um, and we can do good, we can bless when we are reviled, when we are cursed, and we can submit our cry, our complaint to our Father in heaven, who is the just judge of all the earth, and as such will do right. Verse, uh, let's look at verses 13 through 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's look at that first question, or let's look at yeah, verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? What do you think of Peter's question here? After all, didn't Jesus say that we should expect being harmed precisely for doing good? Is Peter saying, as long as you do good, no one is going to harm you. Don't worry about it. Just keep, keep on. Keep on the straight and narrow. And no affliction shall befall you. <laughs> that's, the, that's the false gospel of the prosperity gospel, isn't it? Yes, yes. It is a, obviously a, he's talking in a metaphysical sense. Right? The, not the physical, but beyond physical. Okay. The spiritual sense. Doing good. Is, he's not talking about works. Right. Right, right. Righteousness through works. He's talking, imaging Christ in your heart and do it and emulating His behavior and His and God's uh, laws in your life for your spiritual salvation, your spiritual goodness. Right? You know that you're correct. You know you're right. You may be uh, persecuted. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm sure Peter later on in life, would call these words and say, I'm still good. I'm still good with God. Okay. I'm doing the right, the right thing. Even though he knew he was going to be killed. Right. His conscience has been cleansed That's right. by the purifying blood of Christ, which he speaks of later in this same chapter. And that is his... Foundation for continuing to do good despite whatever harm might come to him. I already mentioned Psalm 56 and some verses here. Uh, Psalm 56, verse 3, or verse 2 My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And if you wanted to argue with David a little bit, you say, well, David, you just said what flesh can do to you. They can trample on you all day long. You even say in verse 1, all day long an attacker oppresses me. You go on to say they injure your cause. All their thoughts are against you for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch your steps. They wait for your life. They've committed crimes. 
surely, David, they are doing all kinds of evil things to you. And he doesn't deny that. But he still says, what can flesh do to me? And then in verse 11, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? He is secure. Because he's on the solid rock with Christ. So ultimately, this ultimate metaphysical sense, no one can, um, can destroy you. So even Job can say, you know, though he slay me, yeah, I shall trust in him. Even if God were to take me down, my uh, righteousness doesn't lie in, in me, but in my Redeemer. So I'm, I'm secure. So I can take any kind of affliction, any kind of persecution from the world. That's not going to change who I am in Christ. That's not going to change the goodness of God, the justice of God, the mercy of God, the long-suffering of God, the wisdom of God, the power of God. That's not going to change any of those things. So I can keep on. Uh, as this exile, I can keep on um, being a pilgrim that is faithful to the Lord. And so what he's saying, as one commentator says, is no one can ultimately harm those who are zealous in doing good. The promise of the heavenly inheritance guarantees that the distresses of this life do not constitute the last word. They don't have the final word on uh, your standing before God. So how should we view suffering? Well, Peter tells us we should view ourselves as blessed. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Do we view ourselves as blessed when we face persecution from the world, however it's manifested? Do we you know, get on our knee and pray to the Lord, thank you for this pain. Oh, I feel so blessed. Do we do that? No. no. Again, we've bought the lie of the false prosperity gospel. If I am in pain, I'm not being blessed. If I'm in prosperity, if that is a sign, then that God's favor is upon me. Therefore, I must give more. <laughs> so that seed. <laughs> Peter is telling us to have a, a paradigm shift here, a, a mental change. View yourself as blessed. And I already read those Beatitudes that Jesus, uh, that Jesus pronounces in the Sermon on the Mount. We might view ourselves as cursed, and when we do, we must, as Paul tells us, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and say, no, this is actually not a curse from God. It's actually a blessing from God. however hard it is to experience, however hard it is to adopt that mentality. When I'm being faithful to what the Lord calls me to do and I'm being persecuted for that, I, I can say, how long, O oh Lord? How long will this continue? I can cry out with a psalmist like that, but I can also say, I'm blessed. I can be both blessed and stressed. Philippians 1.29, he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, 
It's a great passage. This twofold gift faith in Christ and suffering because of union with Christ. We'll take the first. We really want to take the first. Because I couldn't I couldn't believe on my own. That second one. Speaks to the human condition where people tend to when they are suffering, and people suffer every day in some form or fashion, that they tend to focus on that suffering. And they cannot see anything outside of that, mm-hmm. that which leads to uh, anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, etc. And, and if you can see that in your suffering there are still blessings that you have in your life, right? You may have some physical affliction or financial affliction or an emotional affliction, but you know you still have a home. You still have uh, food that you can eat. You still have clothing that you can wear. So you know, it's there are many different types of affliction. But when you start to focus on that, what, mm-hmm. I think what the, you know, Peter is saying here is that you know you still have joy in your life. Don't you're you may be suffering you mm-hmm. know in the body, in the mind, in the spirit, in, in some form or fashion, but you still you still have God's blessings upon you because you're a Christian because you have brought Christ into your heart. And to focus, instead of on your afflictions in a way, focus on the blessings that Christ has given and you. Can, you know, and that's how people also emotionally, and mentally, and physically can work themselves out of their suffering in some way. To your point, the only thing I caution on that is, yes, we do have blessings while we have sufferings, mm-hmm. but it ain't a checkbook, it ain't a balance sheet. No, it's no, it's no, it is. We need, to, we need to get to the point in our Christian walk we can relish in our suffering, that we can be blessed in our suffering, because we need to ask the question of ourselves, what is it, Lord, you're trying to teach me? What are you trying to show me? And so we're not working it out anything by ourselves. No, I, I wasn't suggesting that. Well, you kind of said that. Well, but I mean, I just want to clarify. Well, I mean, you, people okay. tend to focus on, I know, people tend to focus on the things that are right in front of us. Right? That's true. Absolutely, we should do that. All I'm saying is we need to be very careful because it's really not us that's working ourselves out of the affliction. Christ is going to get us out yes. of the affliction. He's going to teach us. We will stay in the affliction until Christ has taught us, or God has taught us exactly what it is he wants to teach us and how we grow. That's how we build our relationship with Christ mm-hmm. and with God. And it drives us to prayer. It drives us to seeking our other brothers and sisters in Christ to help us through that crisis or whatever is going on. That's the only that's yeah. the And the point is, as again he'll say in the next chapter, is that even this suffering, even this affliction, uh, is from God. Our God is sovereign in that he works out even this. You're only, Peter has in mind, those who are suffering for the sake of righteousness. That is to say, they're only suffering because they are connected to Christ and they are, uh, they desire to proclaim the excellencies of him who called them out of darkness. So that's a, a, that's a good thing if, if, when you are um, being persecuted for the very thing that your Savior was persecuted for. Okay. The word blessed actually means holy or consecrated. So when we're going through suffering, we're, we're being made holy. <laughs> I think sometimes we just use it very flippantly sure. mm-hmm. in our culture. I'm so blessed. 
Right. Yeah, and that's, I was kind of uh, alluding to that, you know, that hashtag too blessed to be stressed, you know, that kind of mentality. <laughs> you can, I think you can be stressed <laughs> and blessed at the same time. Blessed despite stressed. That doesn't have a good ring to it, though. <clears throat> so our mentality uh, is we, we should switch from, you know, what if to even if. What if this? What if he says that? What if they do this? And our minds can, can project out a whole course of action. We don't know what will happen. But we say, well, what if this? What if I lose this relationship? You know, what if they treat me in this way? What if they revile me continually, despite what, I, what I'm saying? And our, the biblical posture is, even if those things happen, I'll still trust in Christ. Christ is still for me. Uh, we see this spirit of contentment in Philippians 4, for instance. He's learned the art, secret of contentment. If he has a lot, if he has a little. Even if he has a lot, He's content. Even if he has a little, he is content. And I think of um, that beautiful passage at the end of Habakkuk. Remember, Habakkuk is this prophet who, who knows that the Babylonians are coming to invade the southern kingdom. And he says he's waiting for that day because the Lord has assured him that that's going to happen. Babylonians are coming to take down the final... The final uh, um, Try and to bring them into Babylon. And he says in verse 17, it's just a statement of even if, even those, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. That's my stuff. That, that's, that's all the stuff that I need to live here on earth. My food, my drink, my land. Yet, I'll rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. The fig's not my strength. The olive is not my strength. The land is not my strength. The herd is not my strength. God is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Even if all these things leave me, at the hand of God, God does not leave me. My joy can remain because my joy is not connected to the olive. It is not connected to the fig. It is connected to the herd. My joy is connected to the one who will never leave me nor forsake me. And so I can carry on and have no fear of them, uh, the, the, the world. I am secure in Christ and my mission remains to do good to those who persecute, to speak good, to replace the evil with the good, to consider myself blessed. So we view persecutors with no fear. Now turn to Matthew 10. It's almost as if Peter has this text in mind when he writes what he does. In Matthew 10, uh, you can just, if you have an ESV, you might have section titles, and at, right in front of, or right ahead of verse 16, it says, persecution will come. 
So he, Jesus assures his disciples, because he sends them out, he assures them that they will be persecuted. You know, don't think that because you're a disciple, you're above the teacher, you're going to be persecuted. And then verse 26 through 33, he says, you shouldn't have any fear of them. So verse 28, he says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You should have a greater fear of God than of man. And as, as Matthew continues this uh, chapter, there's even uh, mention of people receiving a reward for their faithfulness and for receiving those who go out in the name. And Peter speaks about that in 1 Peter 4. We're not to have fear of these earthly persecutors. We are to have a higher honoring, a higher estimation of our God who loves us, who created us, who sustains us, who cares for us, who is with us every step of the way. And if we have that, then we're thinking rightly. We're having the right um, worldview. We're having the right uh, mental state. In fact, Peter tells us to view Christ in a way of honoring him. And we get to verse 15, which you know is uh, the apologetic verse. And there's a lot of others, but this is the one that we usually quote just the last part, always be being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason that for a reason to hope that is with that is in you. Before that, it's in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy. This means that we do not despise Christ when we suffer. We do not take Job's wife's advice, curse God and die. He was suffering for righteousness' sake. And the attack of the world in the form of his wife was curse God and die. That's not the attitude we are to have when we face affliction. We do not allow our present pain to eclipse the light of Christ. And so in verses 14 and 15... Peter is quoting, or alluding to, and it's more clear in the, the Greek, but it's still present in the English, Isaiah 8. So Isaiah 8, um, you can look at that briefly. You see, again, if, you're, if you had an ESV, it says, uh, right in front of the chapter, it says, the coming Assyrian invasion. And if you know Israelite history, the northern kingdom gets taken before the southern kingdom. 722 BC, the Syrians are uh, taking the, taken the north. And so Isaiah says, they're coming. And uh, verse 11, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of the people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. So don't have a fear of them. We just saw that in Peter's. Don't fear the world. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. 
a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Don't fear. Don't fear the one who can kill the body, but fear him who created the body, created the soul. So here, in Peter's letter, we are exhorted to have a fear, to have a proper honoring. But it is a fear and honor of Christ. He is our sovereign. He is the one who directs how we think, what we say, how we live, all that we do. God alone is to be worshipped. God alone is to be feared. Too often, especially when persecutions come our way, we want to do anything we can to remove, remove that pain. And that might mean submitting to the pressures of that person who's not thinking the way that Christ would have them or us think. And Peter's saying, don't let that pressure drive you off the way of righteousness. Honor Christ. Consider him as holy. Let what he says drive everything you think, say, and do. That doesn't mean that we have nothing to say to the persecutors. In fact, he tells us to prepare an answer. And this is less about getting into all of the intellectual weeds in apologetics, though that does have its place, and uh, there are individuals who are uh, quite expert at that endeavor. But it's more about uh, the hope that is in you. It's more existential, practical, explaining the hope that you have through the suffering. So this uh, need to prepare an answer assumes that some people would use our suffering as a cause to challenge our faith in Christ. Is that a realistic assumption? Do people do that? Do people take our pain and say, there you have it. There's no reason to believe. There's no hope. Should, you know, this, is a, this is a blind faith. That's what Satan does. That's what Satan does? Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. He, puts that, he tries to put that little piece of doubt in our minds. Why are you, why are you putting up with this? And all the, everything that goes into your head and yeah, there are sinful people who, would, who do not believe in trying God, will do all these things to accuse you even more and to, you know, lambaste you with those and, and, and in fact, want you to come to their side to drive you away from the gospel. So yeah, I, you know. Yeah. I would say, too, that even well-meaning Christians who are in the prosperity gospel will try to destroy your faith, thinking that, well, you're not healed yet, so it must be that you haven't had enough faith to be healed from your physical affliction. Right. Um, I I had that happen to me when I was going through my cancer surgeries, that um, well-meaning people who thought that they were right um, end up taking away from the gospel and who Christ is and who he's called us to be instead of um, just believing and having enough faith on your own to be healed. It's, it's absurd. And it's sad. 
It is. I think of Job's friends as well. I think they were well-meaning. <laughs> and they kept saying, there's, there's a sin somewhere. Something. Somewhere in there. You've got to do that introspection. Find it out. And once you find it out, you can confess it, and then God will be uh, propitious towards you, and then you won't be in pain as you are. So sometimes it's from the world. Sometimes it's from well-meaning Christians. It's probably counterintuitive, but I mean, our suffering is to glorify God. Mm-hmm. And it's in, 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 you know, it's not glorifying us. Even when we do get through suffering, and we, we over, we, you know, we've overcome it. We're still, it's overcome because of God, and it, it's to His glory. And so it puts all these other people to shame. All those that would say the things that they say, whether, you know, mm-hmm. um, saying it in the fact that oh, you didn't pray enough, or oh, you didn't do this, or you didn't do that, or the ones that are just absolutely there is no God. Why do you put up with this? Um, why do you act this way? You know, when we see our, when we, when we get through that, when, when the Holy Spirit carries us, carries us, because that's who's carrying us through this whole situation, whatever it is, in the end, it's the glory of God, and then He is glorified, not so much us. We're not, again, I just caution again, you know, we, it's not about us elevating or us getting through it and, oh, look at me, because there's a tendency to do that, even Christians. Um, but in the end, it is, it is for our good. For our relationship to draw closer to Christ, and then also in the, the, the main thing is to glorify God, that He be glorified. Yeah. I, I agree with everything that Ron said. Um, you know, I was reading, well, Colossians 1 24, it's notoriously difficult verse. It is, now I rejoice, this is Paul, and now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's so a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to understand that verse, but I've read, read recently where you know, the thrust of that verse is, well, first we can agree, right, that there's nothing lacking in Christ's sacrifice, right? We can agree on that. Yeah, we'll be singing today, Jesus paid it all. Yes, yeah. right. so we can agree on that. So what is Paul talking about? And one commentator, um, respected commentator, said, basically, if you look at the entire thrust of that passage, it's evangelistic. Mm-hmm. And that our suffering serves a purpose. That when we are resting in Christ, when we at peace through suffering, that we are giving a testimony to who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We think about two people, you know, facing a life-threatening, life-threatening illness, and they're going through maybe cancer treatment, end-stage cancer treatment. You have the non-believer who's just reaching and struggling, and the world's coming crashing down, and by God's grace, you have the believer who's resting in Christ and going through this with peace. That is a testimony to the non-believing world. And it's also a testimony to the church. Right? It increases our own faith when we see some a godly person going through that and still at peace with themselves. Yes. And that verse is a reminder of the ongoing suffering that the church will experience. Um, it, it, we, when we talk about the church and the different uh, words we can say, you know, visible and invisible, and that gets us something. And another way of understanding the church is church militant and church triumphant. Church militant is us right now here on earth, militant fighting. So we are in a battle, and that battle assumes suffering. And so Christ's 
Christ's mission for the church is to be militant. It is to um, take on the suffering, not as in any kind of atoning work, because that has already been done, but again, as part of being in union with Christ and evangelistic, has the purpose as well, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us. And one day, which uh, he will get at in just a little bit, uh, we become the church triumphant. We are raised in, in glory uh, as, as the bride of Christ, spotless, without blemish, in, in a manner uh, following our own Christ, who was humiliated and exalted. Rick, were you going to add something? Uh, well, I was going to say one thing, but just to add what you just said. Um, we have been so, in, in, in American culture, since the time of our country, you know, we have not experienced persecution for our faith um, the way that the church has through the centuries and the way the church is in other parts of the world. Uh, but it's come, it's already there to an extent in countries like England and Canada. And I think we should be prepared for it. And we should especially be preparing our children for it. Because sad to say and think about it. Yeah. It looks like it's coming. The state is bearing down the neck of uh, counseling organizations that are trying to help people with same-sex attraction or who uh, want to repent from homosexuality and the state is saying, you can't even try to provide them any kind of transformative uh, help because by that you're, you're not uh, adopting their mentality. And so people can get in trouble. There can be fines, organizations can be shut down, you know, prison. Yeah, so we see it already in, in some areas. And it's, <clears throat> if that's how it is, then we will consider ourselves blessed. And we need to stay true to what the word says, despite the, you know, the persecution. Every Christian is individually responsible for knowing this hope that Peter speaks to and explaining biblical rationale for having it. So, I was very, very specific in, what, in that, that point. It's, it's not that every Christian has to know all of the ins and outs of the science or the archaeology or anything like that. That's not what Peter's getting at here when he says, have an answer for, the, for those that you know, um, challenge you, who ask. But you can always rest on your Savior. This is what my Savior has told me I will experience. And he died and rose again. So I take comfort that this persecution, this pain, is not going to be final word. I, I don't say this, what I just said, I don't say that to discourage in-depth study of these other fields. But sometimes um, we have the, the, I think, unnecessary pressure we have to be experts in all these fields. We, have to, we just have to have all the right arguments. Here's an argument from science, here's an argument from history, archaeology, etc. Uh, I've got to be well-versed in the ontological argument or the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, and all these different arguments. I have to be so well-versed. I have to you know, have a PhD in philosophy in order to adequately 
uh, explain the hope that is within me. And Peter's not encouraging, he's not saying that's a necessity. Uh, we can simply say, I know whom I have believed. And he is able to uh, keep what uh, has been entrusted to me. That does, that's not a conversation ender, if you will, um, but it is the ground of our hope. Okay, our ground is not in whatever the history says, whatever the science says. Though history and science don't contradict what the Bible says, uh, as properly understood. Um, but everyone uh, is supposed to have uh, that hope. And it could be simple. It could even be, uh, <coughs> this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And a lot of apologists will demean that kind of approach. And I say, that's childlike faith, and Jesus will take that. And we're called to have that childlike faith. Right. That's what he said. Right. So it doesn't have to be PhD faith. It you know, what is it, just the, 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 the burning of a wick? And Peter says that this apologetic, um, that is to be given a gentle answer, a respectful answer, um, does put the persecutor to shame, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. They're put to shame by us having a good conscience before God. By our conscience not being, um, not wavering. By our commitment to Christ being firm. Because we are honoring Christ as Lord. We're not letting, again, our distresses, our suffering have the final say. They who speak ill of the suffering saints will one day be shamed by God. If they are not going to bend the knee and bow to Christ on this side of heaven then um, they will acknowledge him as Lord, despite their, um, well, whether they want to or not, they will, they will acknowledge. And what we see in Psalm 23 is that the believers who suffer well will be vindicated on the last day. We will even, um, the Lord prepares a table for us before our enemies. The world will see that we are in communion with our Christ. And they can't do anything about it. So it is better, as verse 17 says, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. It's better to have a good conscience before God suffer the wrong, than to stain or sear your conscience before God by making amends with wicked men, by backsliding, by committing apostasy. And um, this posture and this commitment to Christ may have a positive influence on the unbelieving persecutor. 
very similar to the godly wife's conduct that could affect her husband, her unbelieving husband as well, which Peter already um, mentioned. So Christ is, our, is a ruler of our hearts, and he is also our righteous example. We don't have time to uh, get into all of this, but let me just read verses 18 to 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. The complex sentence there. <laughs> Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So we have in this section a, a brief um, description of the two states of Christ. What are the two states of Christ as our mediator? I don't think I put it in the notes. I did not. Between God and man? Or two states? I mean... He functions as prophet, priest, and king. Those are his three offices in two states, in two periods. Um, the first, obviously, preceding the second, having fulfilled the first. So those are, those are his offices, prophet, priest, and king. The state, the first state that he enters with the incarnation is called the state of humiliation. So from the incarnation... He lives this life uh, in, a, in a world of sin and suffering. And then he, he, he dies at the point of death. He dies on a cross. He's buried. Okay. And then, uh, in Philippians 2, talks about these two states. And the second state is the exaltation. He's raised. He's, he's raised from the dead. He even ascends and then is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he is judging the living and the dead. So that's the state that he is currently in. He is not in the humiliated state anymore. He is in the exalted state. Uh, and so that's what Peter briefly mentions here, and Philippians 2, 1 through 11 talks about those two states as well. And what the good news here is that we are humiliated. We are in that state of humiliation, following our Savior, but one day we will be exalted as well. Remember, this humiliation is not is any kind of work of atonement. We're not doing that. We're not suffering uh, for our own sins that we might be made right before God. That's not what's going on here. It's just that we're following our Savior. We are imitating Christ. As the head goes, so goes the body. And Unique to the suffering of Christ regarding suffering is that it is sufficient suffering. This could be a three-point sermon. Sufficient suffering, it is righteous suffering, and it is effective suffering. It is sufficient suffering in that it is suffering once and for all. That is once for all time. Christ suffered once for all time. And that suffering was culminated at the cross when he suffered the fullness of the wrath of God. And it was righteous suffering. He didn't suffer as an unrighteous one, as an unjust man. 
He suffered, though he was spotless, though he was without blemish, though he was even righteous, he suffered. So that the unrighteous could become righteous. That great exchange in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that him might become the righteousness of God. And this is effected, effective suffering. It really brought about reconciliation with God. He might, so that he might bring us to God. Christ, through his suffering, it doesn't mean uh, to deny his active obedience of Christ, his law-keeping, but through his suffering, we are also reconciled to God. He didn't die for himself. He died for us. That we might be brought into that, from that state of enmity to a state of peace, for he is our peacemaker. And, and that's... Um, I guess that's all the time we have. But we can return evil with good because our Savior suffered the greatest evil for our greatest good, for our salvation, for the glory of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our wonderful God, we thank you for the time we had this morning to consider some of Peter's words here. We need to be, um, we need to regularly consider the sufferings of Christ and our own sufferings, that we might glorify you in all that we do, that we might see uh, Christ's beautiful work of submitting himself to you, Father, for, for his glory, uh, for his exaltation, but for our eternal good as well. And we pray, Lord, that this great work of Christ will, by the Spirit, fuel us to continue to live in a world full of thorns and thistles and in a state of sin, in a state of sin and misery. Thankful, Lord, that you have brought us out of that state and brought us into the estate of salvation by the Redeemer. But we also pray, Lord, that we can be witnesses, witnesses to your goodness despite the pain, witnesses to the light, the power of the truth of God, our Savior. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.